You're listening to Confronting Christianity, a podcast of Training the Church. I always encourage people to ask when you come to a passage like this, not simply, how does this law strike me in my context, but actually more fundamentally, how would this law have struck the original audience in their context? There is no more awesome judgment than the judgment that we see happening on Calvary's cross. And so the more we read God's book about himself, the more we're going to come to see that he does not change and how that is good news for us, even if it's beyond what we can comprehend and even if it's very difficult for us sometimes. already laughing because the friend I'm talking to today is completely ridiculous and amazing. Her name is she Mary Wilson Hannah. She shushed me already. Don't interrupt me when I'm introducing you. Let me try <laughs> that again. Uh, Mary Wilson Hannah holds a PhD in the Old Testament from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School uh, with a particular focus on the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. She is the director of women's ministry or women in ministry at Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. She also teaches Old Testament at Memphis City Seminary, and Mary enjoys teaching and training others to teach the scriptures, especially in the context of the local church. Mary, I think you and I met first via phone about five years ago. Is that your recollection? It was something... We did meet on the phone. And I told you I loved you in that conversation and it really threw you off. I was going to say that. So I was at a point in my life, I've, I've lived in America for 16 years, and it took me a really long time to adjust to the fact that Americans seem to tell each other they love each other all the live long day. Um, I mean, I'm a Brit, like I, I have had close friends for decades where we wouldn't say that. Not because we don't, it's just like not a thing that Brits say. And so I was kind of in this process of, of adjustment still to this American norm because it just felt kind of inauthentic. I'm like, you don't love me. You don't even know me. What's going on here? And I, I expressed this in the conversation that I had with Mary. And at the end of the call, I remember you saying, I remember you telling me that you love me and being like, I really mean it. I was like, get out of here. Get out of here. I was lying. I was being <laughs> yeah, authentic. Okay. I was being authentic. Um, and now you'll never know. <laughs> now, now I'll never know. Um, and I've often said to Mary, she, she has the effrontery to live in Tennessee. But if she moved to Boston, I would like make her be my hangout with me every week friend because she's just that combination of like extremely funny and very clever and like deeply loving of the Lord that is is a combination I find hard to resist. Well, I think it's easy for you to think about my hanging out with you every day. It's easy to think about that as a dis- at the distance. But if I started influencing your children and like teaching them all kind of weird jokes, I think you probably would be so good. Um, I didn't say every day. I said every week because, you know, definitely every day would be too, too much. But every but week. I, love, I need every day. <laughs> I would love that. This is going great so far. Anyway, anyway, anyway. Um, Mary, you did, a, you did a PhD in Deuteronomy. Am I right? Yeah. So it, the, technically it's in theological studies with a focus on Old Testament. And I did my dissertation in Deuteronomy. Okay. Dissertation on Deuteronomy. Non-technically, yes. yes. I did, uh, did my uh, doctorate in Deuteronomy. <laughs> so here's the thing. I, I think a lot of people who start reading the Bible in Genesis, then get stuck in Leviticus and they don't actually get to Deuteronomy. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to talk next week with a friend who's doing his PhD on Leviticus. So we're going to kind of, we're going to tread lightly on Leviticus for now, Mm -hmm. but maybe help us understand to begin with, 
What will we miss if we give up reading the Old Testament before we get to Deuteronomy? What would we miss? Well, it depends on if you mean, what would we miss in terms of the storyline or what would we miss in general? Let me start just with in general. The Bible is a book about God. Mainly, it's a book about God, the whole thing. And of course, it's a book about lots of other things too, but primarily it's a book about God. And so if we fail to read any part of it, we're missing understanding of and knowledge of God. That's fundamentally what we miss if we don't read portions of the Bible. You know, you and I, the first conversation we had, you were obviously laughing about the fact that we went to level five uh, and I told you inauthentically or authentically, we'll never know that I love you. But generally, when you first get to know someone, you ask basic questions about their life story and about them and you get to know them a bit. But the deeper in friendship you go, the more you want to know someone and the more you want to hear all of their life story and know everything about them. And put simply, that's what reading the Bible is. We're getting to know God. We're getting to know mm. what his story is, to put it in human terms, and what he loves and what he hates and what he's like and what he's done. So every portion of the Bible describes different aspects of who God is. In particular, in the storyline, what you would miss if you don't read the parts up to Deuteronomy, you would miss the story of God's creating the world. The Bible holds that bold claim that God actually created literally everything that exists. <laughs> and it's, it's a wild claim, and it's hard to wrap our minds around that literally God is the one who created everything that exists. And so we would miss the stories about God's creating the world, the stories about how human beings rebelled against God, and so therefore the world became a broken place, and the stories about how God responds to that rebellion, not just in judgment, but also promising to make it right again, hmm. promising to restore his creation. And he does it through a particular family. He creates a family and uh, through that family is going to bring blessing to the entire earth. So we, that's the storyline that we would miss if we didn't read the first few books of the Bible. So when we get to Deuteronomy in particular, you know, people are probably more familiar with maybe what happens in Genesis and in Exodus as, as God leads his people out of Israel and, and starts giving them the law. Flesh out what, Deuteron like what Deuteronomy is about just at a high level so we can kind of get oriented in terms of where we are. Okay, so I mentioned that and you're referring to in Genesis. In Genesis, God begins to uh, show that he's going to restore the earth through one particular family, through a man, Abram, and his wife, Sarai. And he's going to restore the earth and bless all the families of the earth through one particular family. And throughout Genesis, we see this family growing and multiplying, and God promises to give them a particular land uh, that's going to be like not, not exactly like, but like in many respects, that first place where the first two human beings lived, that was called the land of Eden in Genesis. And God promises that he's going to take them to this promised land, this land called Canaan. And that is where God is going to be with his people and, and enter into a covenant relationship with them. A covenant is like a contract. It's a family-like relationship of mutual obligation. It's like a marriage covenant. So God is going to enter into this covenant relationship with his people in this particular place, this land of Canaan. And from Genesis to Deuteronomy, we have this story of 
the complication entering, which is we're wondering, is God actually going to keep his promise? Because Mm. when we get to the book of Exodus, God's people are in Egypt and they're enslaved. And it doesn't look at all like God is fulfilling his promise that he's going to bring blessing to all the families of the earth through this particular family of Abraham and Sarah in this particular lovely place called Canaan. And so the book of Exodus describes how God delivers his people from slavery in Egypt and guides them through the wilderness. We see that also in Leviticus and in Numbers, the fourth book, how God is guiding them through the wilderness. And when we come to Deuteronomy, it's one of the most fascinating settings of the entire scriptures because the people, the Israelites, this family, this particular family through whom God is going to bless every family in the earth, they are at the edge of the promised land. That land I was saying called Canaan, which is like a new Eden, a new place where God's people can dwell in intimate covenant relationship with him. And they're at the edge of the promised land. And Moses, the prophet, who's 120 years old, I mean, I'm 41 and I feel like a bag of bones. I just can't even imagine. But Moses is 120 years old and he is preaching his heart out. And in fact, the book of Deuteronomy mostly consists of his final sermons to this group of people with whom he's wandered with them in the wilderness for about 40 years. And he's putting a challenge before them. Are they going to listen to God's word and thereby flourish in this place called Canaan? They're going to listen to his instruction and therefore experience his blessing and enjoy this intimate covenant relationship? Or are they going to rebel against his word and eventually forfeit the privilege of living a flourishing, blessed life in covenant relationship with God and be exiled ultimately from this promised land? Mm. So the, the book of Moses, I mean, the book of Deuteronomy really can be summarized with the charge choose life, <laughs> mm. don't choose death choose life by listening to God's word. Uh, So that's what the book of Deuteronomy is all about. And it concludes with Moses' death outside the promised land. And then we have to get to the next book, the book of Joshua, to see the Israelites actually entering into the promised land and taking possession of it. Hmm. What would you add to that besides a British accent? No, I yeah no be- beautiful summary of of Deuteronomy there. So I'm gonna I'm gonna press on with our questions because uh, what would I have to add? <laughs> so I think some some people you know you mentioned the the promise of this land to God's people and how God brought His people out of Egypt out of slavery in order to settle them in this new place. Mm-hmm. But that also involved getting rid of the people who were in that place. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people today would have some understandable sort of ethical qualms about that. I'm going to read one little passage from, from Deuteronomy 2 for, for you to, to comment on, because I think this might be a, a particular passage in Deuteronomy people would, would struggle with. So Deuteronomy 2 from verse 31 reads, And the Lord said to me, this is Moses speaking, See, I've begun to deliver Sihon and his country over to you, now begin to conquer and possess his land. When Sion and all his army came out to meet us in battle at Jahaz, the Lord our God delivered him over to us and we struck him down together with his sons and his whole army. At that time, we took all his towns and completely destroyed them, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. 
But the livestock and the plunder from the towns we had captured, we carried off for ourselves from Arroer on the rim of the Arnon Gorge and from the town in the gorge, even as far as Gilead, not one town was too strong for us. The Lord our God gave us all of them. How, how do you make sense of a, a passage like that, Mary, a sort of historical situation like that, in light of the command that Jesus gives his followers to love their enemies? Wow, that's a million dollar question. How much, how much time do we have? No, I really appreciate your asking that question because let me shoot you straight, I wrestle with it. Something that I want to say, that the example that you're giving is of Sion. So the first thing we want to do when, when we're looking at a passage that is challenging to our ethical assumptions and our ethical mores is we want to look at it in context. And so in the particular example of Sihon, God's people had asked for safe passage. Sihon, this is when the, the um, Israelites are wandering in the wilderness before they come into the promised land. Sihon rejected them, rejected uh, them, giving them safe passage, and then came out against them and attacked them. So he was the aggressor. But let me give you a more complicated, less straightforward example, where God, a few chapters later in Deuteronomy, commands the people through Moses, or as you would say, via Moses, commands them to destroy all the Canaanites who hadn't come out against them in aggression, like Sihon had. And that is a that is an awesome ethical issue that every thoughtful Christian must wrestle with. It is very concerning to me when I myself or when other believers gloss over matters like that and act as if, oh, it's simple, it's straightforward. Um, So I'm glad you're asking that question. I'm actually going to start at the end. (laughs) When I think about, when I try to make sense of what God is doing, why is he commanding this? I like to begin with the end of time. And what does the scripture teach us about the end of time? Well, we know about Jesus's first coming when he comes and takes on flesh and dwells among us. Remember, Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is God in flesh. If we want to know what God is like, we are to look at Jesus and discover what God is like. He shows us perfectly what God is like. And Jesus came the first time to live a perfect life, to identify with sinners, to give up his life and die on a cross in the place of any person who would simply put her trust in Jesus, and then to be raised in glory and is now seated at God's right hand. And the Bible teaches us that Jesus is coming a second time. And this is really good news for Christians, that Jesus is going to come again And what the Bible teaches us about what Jesus will do and accomplish when he comes again is that he will bring judgment, ultimate judgment. We're in the, in my local church, we're in the gospel of John right now. And just this week, we're looking at John chapter five. And in John chapter five, Jesus describes that at the end day, every body, every dead body, this is wild, this is wild, Hmm. Every dead body will hear his voice and be raised. Mm. Meaning every human being who has ever lived will hear the voice of Jesus and be raised. And then Jesus will enter into judgment. And those who have done well in this context, meaning those who have put their trust in Jesus will receive everlasting resurrection life and live in that ultimate 
garden paradise, the new heavens and new earth. And every person who has done evil in that context of John, who has refused to put his or her faith in Jesus, will be condemned and punished to eternal hell. This is an awesome, breathtaking, sobering reality. And frankly, I have many people, family and close friends, who right now are walking as enemies of God and who have not put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a truth that the Bible teaches, that while I know it is good, because everything about God is good, in my flesh, it causes me to shudder, and it is awesome, and it is difficult. The reason why I start there with what the Bible teaches about ultimate judgment is because I can't make sense of the kind of judgment that you're describing in Deuteronomy without looking to that last day. Mm-hmm. Because it seems to me that part of what God is after in calling his particular people in this particular context, he doesn't do this now, as you pointed out, where our battle is not against the flesh, but in this particular covenantal context, he is showing us a picture of the end time judgment that every human being will face if he or she has not put his or her trust in Jesus Christ. So the Bible makes clear in Genesis and elsewhere that the Canaanites, again, the ones who were not the aggressors against Israel, that they had been aggressors against God. So the punishment that God brings on them is just. Uh, The Bible makes a plain case for God's justice in punishing the Canaanites. And then we also, I mentioned the book of Joshua, and in Joshua chapter 2, we see that here is a a woman named Rahab we meet in Joshua chapter 2, who is a Canaanite prostitute. And because she identifies herself covenantally with the Israelite people, she's spared. Mm -hmm. In other words, God's call to his people to wipe out the Canaanites isn't mainly about ethnicity. It's not about ethnic identity. It's about covenantal identity. So when Rahab confesses faith in the one true God, the one living God, she covenantally is no longer a Canaanite. She's Mm -hmm. an Israelite. We also remember that the Israelites were composed, uh, you know, the Israelites hearing Moses preach these actual sermons They were composed of multiple ethnicities. There was not one ethnic group. Now, there was a dominant ethnic group, descendants of Jacob, but it was not a monolithic ethnic group. It was a mixed multitude. Mm -hmm. So it's important that we recognize, just in summary, three things. One, God's actions that he's accomplishing in um, Deuteronomy and calling his people to bring real judgment in time and space pictures for us what he is going to do in a consummate scale. This is a drop in the bucket compared to what Jesus will accomplish when he returns in terms of bringing end time, definitive judgment. Second, God makes plain in the scriptures that any judgment he brings is just. And I so appreciate that, that the Bible makes a case for the justice that God that God shows so that we see he's not just having a bad morning. (laughs) It's not just that he's eaten some funky food. And then third, this is not about ethnic identity. This is about covenantal identity, fundamentally, which is rooted in one's faith 
in God, whether or not one chooses to put her trust in God and identify with the one true God. I think that's so helpful. I think one of the things um, that for me, it becomes clearer and clearer over time as I read more of the scriptures is how often actually we're not going to understand one passage of scripture unless we see it in the light of what's what's around it in the scriptures and in the in the bigger picture of what the the scriptures as a whole uh, are pointing us to and you've given us a great model of that of of helping us to understand okay what what was going on even with with Sion and the the people um who were specifically being um judged in in this passage of Deuteronomy and how does this connect up with the big story of the the scriptures as a whole i think that's that's really helpful I'm going to flip over to to another part of, of Deuteronomy kind of later in the book where we, we're confronted with another uh, passage that feels really ethically difficult uh, for us to understand today in, in our cultural context. And, and I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on this passage as well. So this is from Deuteronomy 22. And it reads like this. It's part of a, a section of, of law in Deuteronomy. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, Then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. Can you help us understand that verse? I think many today would think, okay, so this is a situation of rape. And what this law is saying is that somebody who who was raped then needs to marry the person who raped them. Um, That seems... So ethically crazy to us. Um, so help us understand that verse in the context of, of what's happening in Deuteronomy. That's a great question. And one that merits sitting with someone uh, across a table with a cup of coffee uh, with more time to, to unpack. But I'm, I'm grateful to mention a few things that we want to think about. Again, when we run across a verse like this that is troubling to us for, for many, many reasons, we always want to look at the context and we want to think about, okay, if the Bible teaches that God is good and that he desires human flourishing, how in the world can this law be advancing that aim? How could God be uh, seeking true human flourishing in this aim, in this law? So that's one of the questions that I begin with. In the context of Deuteronomy 22, I mean, I'm looking right now at the verses above it, uh, Moses is addressing the matter of sexual immorality, and in particular with a focus on adultery, adultery being uh, engaging in sexual intercourse outside of the marriage covenant. And Moses shows that the penalty for the crime of adultery, uh, when it has been done with intent, is death, both for the man and the woman. But what Moses is doing here also is showing that when a man who was the one who held not only the legal um, privileges and authority in that day, but the one who socially was the empowered one relative to the woman, was a patriarchal society and a particular one in which women did not have much standing or they didn't have access to the same sorts of privileges that men did. So when a man abuses his power and rapes a woman, then Moses and God take this very, very seriously. Something that's important as we look at this particular law is, uh, begins, I'm reading it right here. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, now in that context, betrothal was legally binding. It's not like our engagement today where if I don't 
you know, when Jeff proposed to me, I put the ring on the finger. If I decide I didn't want to marry him anymore, I just take the ring off and give it back. Uh, you actually enter into a legal contract. So if a man is, he's see, he meeting a virgin who's not betrothed. So in other words, if he had engaged in sexual intercourse with a woman who was betrothed, that would be tantamount to adultery. So this is a law in which adultery is not in view because she is not betrothed. She is a maiden. And Moses goes on to say, so there, there's, no, there's no question of, of corrupting a merit, an existing marriage covenant, but the man seizes her and lies with her and they are found. Then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of sil- silver. Now, most likely that 50 shekel, shekels of silver, which was a hefty sum, is a bride price. And then she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. So what's being restricted is his, quote unquote, liberty to divorce her. Now, let's flesh this out a bit more. Jesus, when he's speaking to somebody asking about divorce, whether or not uh, somebody can divorce his wife for X, Y, or Z, Jesus says that the reason that God allowed divorce in the Old Testament is because of the hardness of heart of human beings. So God does not demand divorce. He allows divorce because human beings have hard hearts and are wicked and sinful. The laws in the Old Testament, including in Deuteronomy, are not examples of God's creating a perfect ideal system in a sinless world with with people who are not sinful. Rather, God is creating laws that oftentimes aim to restrict the violence and restrict the aggression of those who are socially empowered. And in this case, it is the man socially empowered. And what God is saying is, if you violate this woman, you may not further violate her by dishonoring her such that she no longer is going to get a husband. In that context of an honor-shame culture, this woman who had been sexually violated, no man would have married her. She would have been condemned to a life of um, perpetual living under her father's authority and never being married, never having children. And so God is saying, no, you must honor her with a full bride price. And if you marry her, you may never divorce her. Whereas in other cases, uh, as I mentioned, Jesus recognizes, a man could divorce his wife. So this woman is not only married to this man, she has the full legal rights of an Israelite wife. She also is protected from his resenting her and divorcing her. Mm. Now, something that's important in my view of this law is to recognize that in Exodus 22, Moses gives a very similar law in which when a man wickedly violates a woman, just like this man has done, he must pay the bride price, but the father has the right to refuse. Hmm. Moses says, if the father utterly refuses, dot, 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 dot. And I think in my view, there's some disagreement here, but in my view, Moses is not canceling out that law that he gave in Exodus 22, but we ought to assume that same provision here. That if there were a situation in which the man who violated this woman, either because the woman refused to marry him and the father, her father listened to her and her voice prevailed, or because the father, for some reason, saw, no way am I letting you take my daughter. The father had the right and the legal ability 
to refuse to give her to this man in marriage, but he still had to pay the bride price mm, because he dishonored her. So that's a long-winded answer. And I'm not remotely suggesting that, oh, that answers all the questions. This isn't a difficult passage at all. These are not laws for an ideal society. Uh, God recognizes brokenness and sin in our hearts and in the context of his people. I'm reading a fascinating book at the moment that's been on, it's been on my shelf for years and I've sort of you know those books that you've dipped into and every time you dip in you think oh I need to read all of this and then it, somehow I, I've kind of continued to dip and I'm now about three quarters of the way through actually reading all of it which has been really helpful um, by a historian called Kyle Harper it's called From Shame to Sin uh, and it's looking at the way in which Christianity has changed how we have, how people in the Western world, at least, um, have thought when it comes to sex. And one of the things that he points to is that actually it was, it was Christianity that first introduced the idea of sexual consent for women. Mm. And it's fascinating to me, as, as we kind of look back to an Old Testament passage like this, we look with eyes that have been shaped by Christianity to where it is our fundamental assumption that a woman should, con- like if a woman does not consent to sex, then that is absolutely not okay in any possible, you know, in any world. <laughs> but actually, if you go back to the world into which Jesus was born, you know, the kind of Greco-Roman empire, the idea that a woman would need to consent to sex was like, you know, no, nobody would have thought that for a minute. Um, like it was, it was just not part of the, the kind of ethical, ethical framework. And so because we come in with that expectation, we just read a passage like this completely differently. It, it would have been, if I'm understanding you correctly, Mary, and correct me if I'm wrong, this would have been heard by women at the time as a protection and a provision for them rather than as a terrible scenario where they had to marry their rapist, as it were. That, Like even the, the, the conceptual ideas that we have today, which I think are very good ones, are ones that have come to us from the influence of Christianity that weren't necessarily there before. And I, I, I always encourage people to ask when you come to a passage like this, not simply, how does this law strike me in my context, but actually more fundamentally, what's going to help you understand the law is how would this law have struck the original audience mm. in their context? Yeah. And to your yeah. point, a woman in that context hearing this would have seen that it's the, the man, the male aggressor, whose quote unquote rights now, not rights from God, but I mean, in a sense of, in the ancient context, the ancient culture, whose rights and powers were being restricted. Yeah. Having said that, I suspect you agree with me, Rebecca, that this law is still not easy. And in my flesh, I wish that God had given a law of perfect society, assuming that human beings were perfect and could live up to the ideals uh, that would make the ethical questions so much easier. Yeah. But yet God is like a good kindergarten teacher who is coming to our level and helping us learn stage by stage. And the Bible is progressive revelation. We see mm. more and more who God is and he's, he has purposes to build a people and ultimately to bring the Lord Jesus Christ and, and when we come to the New Testament, we receive his finally realized ethics. That is, it's the Old Testament ethics fulfilled in Jesus. So we don't need to look beyond the New Testament for 
our ethical instruction. The, the New Testament gives us the final ethical instruction of God for life in this age until we see Jesus face to face. But in the Old Testament, we need to recognize we're, we're not yet to Jesus and his gift of the Holy Spirit. Mm. So we don't have the fullness of the biblical ethic like we do in the New Testament. Flesh that out a little more for us, because I think a lot of people have the idea that there is just a massive uh, sort of almost character change for God from the Old Testament to the New, Te- New Testament. And that the I've sort of asked a form of this question to one or two previous um, folks I've interviewed, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Do you think it's it's true that we see a change in God's character between the Old and the New Testament? And if not, help us to understand this, this idea of a kind of progressive revelation or a progressive um, understanding of, of who God is that we see between the Old and the New Testament. There are lots of changes from the Old Testament to the New Testament, but God's character isn't one of them. Hmm. Um, God's character is consistent. And I think partly for the purpose of brevity, which... <laughs> I don't have in spades, but uh, partly for the purpose of brevity, let me just return to what I brought up about Christ's two comings and judgment and just to, to keep that as an example. Sometimes I think people think that the God of the Old Testament is all judgment, no mercy, and the God of the New Testament is all mercy, no judgment. But let's think about Christ's first coming. And Christ's first coming, that is, when he takes on flesh, we celebrate at Christmas his so-called incarnation. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He lives a perfect life. He lays down his life on the cross. He dies on a wooden cross for the sins of his people and then is exalted into heaven. That's his first coming. Jesus came to offer salvation, to accomplish salvation for any person who would simply believe on him. I mean, this is astounding. Some of us are accustomed to this message and so we can get so familiar with this familiar with it that it doesn't blow our mind anymore. But literally the Son of God comes into the world, takes on human flesh, lives a perfect life, and suffers so that any person who simply trusts him will receive freedom and everlasting life. This is amazing. But let's think about the cross for a moment. The cross is so multifaceted, we can't wrap our minds around it, but let's stand on our tippy toes, so to speak, and try. On the one hand, we see God's mercy in beautiful display, because here is God himself, Jesus Christ, dying in the place of anyone who would put her trust in him. We also see God's judgment of sin and hatred of sin, because here is God the Father sending his own son to die. How much does God hate sin? Jesus, the perfect son of God, had to die in our place in order to cleanse us from sin, in order to remake us and give us new hearts. You know, so often we can imagine that the Christian message is that God overlooks sin. He's so merciful that he just overlooks sin. But actually, the Christian message is that on the cross, God pays for sin in his own body, in the body of Jesus Christ. So there is no more awesome judgment than the judgment that we see happening on Calvary's cross. So again, sometimes we look at the Old Testament and we're shocked by the judgment that we see there. But we ought to be, if we're we're really reading the Bible 
carefully, what's most shocking is what we see on the cross in terms of mm. God's judgment of sin. And then, of course, I've already mentioned Jesus' second coming, where we see both his mercy and his justice in full display. So it seems to me that when we pit the so-called God of the Old Testament against the so-called God of the New Testament, it's because we're not reading this book very carefully. Yeah, you know, I said yeah. at the outset that the more you get to know someone, the more you're going to want to get to know someone. If it's a close friend, if it's someone you love. And so the more we read God's book about himself, the more we're going to come to see that he does not change and how that is mm. good news for us, even if it's beyond what we can comprehend and even if it's very difficult for us sometimes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think anyone who sits down and reads through really any of the gospel accounts of Jesus' life in the New Testament will find on the one hand, they are encountering the most merciful and loving human ever to have existed. And at the same time, someone who talks more terrifyingly about God's judgment than any Old Testament prophet, as far as I can, as far as I can tell that we have both of those things at, at full volume, as it were, in the Gospels. And that, yeah, we don't, we don't come to Jesus as the, well, I, I actually love how the book of Revelation describes Jesus, because on the one hand, the, the prominent sort of descriptor of Jesus in the book of Revelation is the lamb, <laughs> you know, the, the sacrificial victim. And yet it is, Jesus is the lamb who is slain, who is, who is the object of, of worship. And he is the lamb who brings wrath. Like he's actually the lamb acting in judgment Yeah, in, in the revelation at the end of time is just, yeah, extraordinary. Plays my mind. Mm-hmm. Total change of direction. But I want to ask you one, one last question. I think I told you, Mary, a few years ago, I was kind of annoyed at you for getting married um, because I had just published a book for teens in which I had cited you as a single woman who is also one of the best Bible teachers I know, which is still true, but you're not single anymore. So you made me a lie and I'm not happy about it. In, in all seriousness, though, anyone who's listened to uh, multiple episodes of this podcast will know that I am a big fan of both marriage and of singleness and that both of them, I believe, are pointers to the gospel. So I'd love to hear your thoughts as someone who was single for, for most, of your, most of your adult life. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how both singleness and marriage are good ways for followers of Jesus to live and serve him. Yeah. Well, as to the comment about my being one of the best Bible teachers, I assume that means you've only heard two. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Great question about singleness and marriage. And you and I both agree that Paul teaches that Christ-centered, faithful singleness in terms of singular focus on the advance of the gospel, it's actually better than Christ-centered, faithful marriage because you're able to to devote to yourself more fully uh, with fewer distractions to the work of seeing the gospel advance. So frankly, that was a large part of uh, why it took me so long to agree to marry because uh, I really, really valued the gift of Christ-centered singleness. And frankly, it's it's been very difficult uh, to transition. Now, I'm very grateful uh, for the gift of Christ-centered marriage and I'm learning a great deal. I trust God's providence in my life. He's not sanctifying me more. He's just sanctifying me in a different way than Mm -hmm. he was sanctifying me when I was single. I do think sometimes we imagine that marriage is more sanctifying than singleness, but that's bogus. So yeah, I mean, and and, gosh, one thing I love about the epistles is how practical, we'll just take Paul, for example, how practical Paul is. He'll give these exhortations, uh, these the instructions about how we are to live the Christian life. And he gives general instructions. And then so often 
he gets really concrete, particular, and he chooses different stations of life. So he'll say wives, blank, 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 husbands, blank, 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 children, blank, blank, blank. And he's showing, okay, I've just given you lots of general instructions. And then in various situations, various stations of life, I'm going to show you how to live out those instructions in particular ways. And I very much feel like singleness and marriage are along those same lines. We all have the same mission and God gives us different gifts, the institution of marriage or the calling to singleness. And we are to live out this glorious gospel and follow the Lord Jesus Christ in both stations. I found marriage to be challenging in terms of, you know, I still have not quite figured out, I'm two years in, and I still have a lot to negotiate in terms of, all right, I used to have a lot more time (laughs) to focus on particular projects. And so it's been a challenge figuring out what does ministry look like in a different context. Mm, Yeah. Both are such blessings and I'm so grateful for both. Amen to that. Isn't that what you were looking for? Anything else in particular? Yeah, no, that's (laughs) great. I'm going to share one one last anecdote um, about you before I I conclude. Um, So a few years ago, I was at a conference where Mary and I were both speakers. And one of the things that we were charged with was to critique each other's talks. And so I'd actually been assigned to try and critique Mary's talk and I sat there, you know, with my little notepad, um, ready to note stuff down. And I'm a, I'm a very, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> Maybe picky could be a word, listener when it comes to um, to talks in general and to, to Bible talks in particular. So I sat there with my pad, like ready to write down any feedback that I had for Mary. And I got to the end of the talk and I, I had nothing on my pad because everything that Mary had said had been incredibly helpful straight from the scriptures and delivered in a way that even as I was sitting there meant to be kind of critiquing it, I just couldn't help but be nourished by it. And I remember particularly, Mary, you told the story of a a new believer who had discovered for the first time that Jesus is coming back. Mm-hmm. And you told the story of her like throwing open the doors at a com- another mm-hmm. conference you've been at and sort of shouting out like, Jesus is mm-hmm. coming back. And how actually those of us who might've been Christians for years have lost the freshness of recognizing mm-hmm. the extraordinary power of the gospel and the extraordinary reality that Jesus is coming back. And I, I remember that to this day, that, that talk that you gave um, from Colossians and how um, focused on, on Jesus and, and the incredible message of his, not only of his first coming and the salvation that he accomplished, but also of his second coming and how we're living in between those, those two things. And I've been so blessed by your ministry and your evident love for the Lord, both as a single person and as a married person. So I'm thankful for you. And I love you, Mary. Well, I, you know what? I love you. <laughs> Not even sarcastically. Um, you've been listening to the Confronting Christianity podcast. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram if you want to go near either of those things. Or X, is it now called X? I don't know. Or you can leave us a review on iTunes. You can also include a question you'd like to see explored in future episodes, and we'll take that into consideration. And please join me next week. I'll be interviewing a friend who's doing a PhD on the Old Testament book of Leviticus and going to ask him some really interesting and probing questions too. Until then. Mm